called the day of grief and desperate sorrow. So let's take our hearts to the Lord. Uh, God, we're just so grateful for uh, your, your patience with us, Father. We're thankful, Lord, that uh, you love us and that you desire to use us and you want to pour your spirit out upon us. And so to that end, we're just asking, God, that you would uh, just move and minister and have your way. God, give us ears to hear you, Lord. Give us the heart's desire to want to respond appropriately to you. Teach us what it means to crucify the flesh that we might walk in the spirit and we'll give you praise in Jesus' holy name. Amen? Amen. Guys, a lot to learn and a lot that we have learned in this current section of scripture that we've been studying. Uh, But perhaps the primary overarching theme threaded throughout it is simply the faithfulness of God to warn the nations of impending judgment. It just doesn't matter what tribe, what tongue, what people, or what nation you belong to. There's just simply no escaping the fact that we will all be called to stand before God to give an account to God. We are His creation, and He is our Creator. And as such, we are accountable to Him. Now, I know there are a lot of people who don't like that, but that's just all there is to it. And not only does God judge the nations throughout world history, but the day is coming when the Lord will judge mankind with finality. Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 25 that the day will come when the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd would separate the sheep from the goats. And he makes it very clear that he will judge between them. And those who have honored him and served him and who've led lives set apart to him, he says, I will say to them, come you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundations of the world. But those who've neglected him, those who've rejected him, chose to do life on their own terms will be cast, the Bible teaches, into everlasting fire uh, which God has prepared for the devil and his angels. Revelation chapter 20 verses 11 through 15 speaks into this as well. We read that the books will be opened, presumably the books that record the works of our lives. And then it says, and another book will be opened, which is the book of life. And your name being found written in it or not, guys, will determine your eternal destiny. Our eternal destiny hinges upon whether or not our name is found written in that book. Well, what am I saying? I'm saying that all throughout his word, God is faithful to warn us, to alert us to the fact that judgment is coming. The question that confronts us is, what are we going to do about it? You see, we can either humble ourselves, repent of our sin, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved, or we can carry on in life just doing business as usual, turn a blind eye to it, choose not to believe it, and then reap the ramifications of our own ways. Last week, we learned of the devastation and destruction that was to come to Moab. In chapter 17, our attention is turned to the nation of Syria. Now, When Isaiah wrote this, 
Israel and Syria. Now, again, I remind you that at this point in Israel's history, the kingdom, you know, Israel was divided into two kingdoms. Um, there was Israel was the northern kingdom, right? And then the nation of Judah to the south. And, but Syria and Israel to the north had formed an alliance of sorts. Now, Syria... Uh, if you got a map or whatever, but you can just take my word for it. Uh, Syria is the nation just to the north and the east of Israel. But these guys would ally themselves uh, fairly frequently, often for the purpose of coming against Judah. But what we see here in chapter 17 is that God links Israel together with Syria in his judgment against Syria. What's the lesson? Partners in crime, partners in consequence, okay? Now, if you've already glanced down at the first verse of the 17th chapter, you've probably noted that it says the burden against Damascus. Now, perhaps you're thinking, well, Jeff, I thought you said Syria was in view for us, was on the radar. Well, that's true. Damascus is the capital city of Syria, okay? So it would be like saying the burden against Washington, D.C. You would just automatically be aware, you would be alerted to the fact that the United States was in view because D.C. is the capital of our nation, right? So we read here, beginning in the first verse, the burden against Damascus, Behold, Damascus will cease from being a city, and it will be a ruinous heap. The cities of uh, Aroer, however you say, Aror, uh, are forsaken, and they will be for flocks which lie down, and no one will make them afraid. The fortress will also cease from Ephraim, the kingdom from Damascus and the remnant of Syria. They will be as the glory of the children of Israel, says the Lord of hosts. Now, uh, if you recall from last week, we were reminded that Assyria, now this can be confusing, right? Because you've got Syria, you've got Assyria, they're two different nations, so you've got Syria to the northeast of Israel, and then you've got Assyria still to the north of Syria. And we were reminded of the fact that God would use Assyria as his instrument of judgment as they sat out in an effort to conquer the known world. And here God is making known the fact that they would, in fact, make Damascus a ruinous heap. That they would totally destroy the capital city of Syria. Now, of course, it would be rebuilt, it would be re-inhabited, but the Assyrians would utterly annihilate it. It would be reduced to, the words are, a ruinous heap. But what I want you to see is what I made mention of a moment ago, and that's in the following verse, the fortress will also cease from Ephraim. Now, Again, I have mentioned this to you in a time or two in past, but by way of reminder, okay, Ephraim was the largest, most influential tribe in the northern kingdom of Israel. So there are times when you're reading through your Old Testament that you will read of uh, Israel. There are times that you will read of Ephraim. Uh, there are times that you'll read of Samaria. Now, Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, now, we'll also see in verse 4 that the region is referred to as Jacob, who would become Israel. 
Now there's a little caveat thrown in there that involves Joseph and his two sons, one of which was Ephraim and the other which was Manasseh, but that's a lesson for another time. The point is, call it Israel, call it Ephraim, call it Samaria, uh, call it Jacob, it all refers to the same place. Simple enough? You're reading through, you read of Jacob, you read of Samaria, you read of Ephraim, you read of Israel, it's all, it's all the same territory. But again, partners in crime, partners in consequence. Look at verse 4. In that day it shall come to pass that the glory of Jacob, now see in the verse 3 he said you're going to be like the glory of uh, Israel, right? The glory of the children of Israel. Now he says that glory will wane and the fatness of his flesh grow lean. And it shall be as when the harvester gathers the grain and reaps the heads with his arm. It shall be as he who gathers heads of grain in the valley of Rephaim or Raphim, or however you say. <laughs> uh, yet gleaning grapes uh, will be left in it like the shaking of an olive tree, two or three olives at the top of the uppermost bough, four or five in its most fruitful branches, says the Lord God of Israel. Now, I know this is a little bit obscure in its reading, uh, but the gist is this. Judgment is coming, and it will find Syria, but since Israel is linked with Syria, Judgment is coming to them as well. The glory of Jacob will wane. They'll be gathered up, is what he's saying, and taken as when a harvester gathers grain. There will be very few, just a remnant left, like when the, when the olive branch is shaken and the most fruitful part that's left just has four or five berries there, you see. Now, don't get me wrong. Israel had sins of its own, which we have discussed in detail in times past in our studies in this book, uh, for which God is judging them. But there's also a very real sense in which they are kind of being caught up in the throes of the judgment that's aimed at Syria as well. What's the take home? This will be what, the third, maybe the fourth time I've said it. Partners in crime, partners in consequence. Be careful who it is that you align yourself with and who it is you join yourself to. The Bible is clear. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part, in other words, he's saying all that, he's saying, what am I saying? What part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God, as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Now Solomon said it this way, he said the righteous should choose his friends carefully for the way of the wicked leads them astray. Guys, I think that's fairly self-explanatory. And it's not that the scriptures forbid being friends with unbelievers. Hey, Jesus himself was called the friend of sinners, right? If you're never around unbelievers, how then can you show to them or share with them who Jesus is? The warning, guys, is that we're not to develop close-knit bonds with ungodly or unbelieving people. You know, marriages, business partnerships, close relationships. 
Because when you get too close to them, when you get kind of linked up and tied together with them, when they stumble or when they fall or when they engage in some kind of sin, you and me, we would be more prone, more likely to stumble or to fall or to engage alongside them. You see, it's way easier for them to drag us down than it is for us to lift them up because we gravitate naturally toward the flesh, but that life led in the spirit is cultivated through discipline. You can get caught up in their ways and likewise, the ramifications of their ways. Make sense? Look at verse seven. In that day, a man will look to his maker and his eyes will have respect for the Holy One of Israel. He will not look to the altars, the work of his hands. He will not respect what his fingers have made, nor the wooden images, nor the incense altars. In that day, his strong cities will be as a forsaken bough and an uppermost branch which they left because of the children of Israel, and there will be desolation." Now, last week, we considered the frustration, we considered the exasperation of seeing the lives of loved ones going through trials and tribulations and all of these tough times, and they're trying to find reprieve in all the wrong places. Remember we were talking about that? It's something that we've all seen. At some point in our lives, you know, someone we know is going through some tremendously tough time, and maybe they go to a psychologist or some sort of therapist. Uh, maybe they will uh, uh, try a support group or, or different programs. Not that any of those things are wrong in and of themselves within the appropriate context. You know, they'll read a book about their situation, but the point is they'll go to just about anyone or try just about anything, but they won't turn to the Lord. And it just breaks your heart because it's in Christ that we find our hope and our healing and our help in time of need. Remember, Jesus said, come to the therapist. Is that what he said? <laughs> and again, if that's your profession, there's nothing wrong. But what I'm saying is, where, where's your first recourse? Where do you go first? Jesus said, come to me. All you who labor and are heavy laden, you're burdened down, you're freaking out, you can't figure it out, whatever. He says, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest, peace for your souls. But man, how we thank God when people allow those tough times to drive them to the feet of Jesus, right? And that's what we're seeing here. In that day, he says, man, when these ramifications come upon you, the ramifications of your own ways, when they find you, he reads here, he writes here, a man will look to his maker. He will not look to the altars or the works of his hands or what his fingers have made. In other words, all of those things that he's been looking to, that he's been leaning on, that he's been trying to find himself in, he's going to throw it in the proverbial trash and he'll look to his maker. Hallelujah. Guys, this is one of the reasons that God allows those difficult days to find us 
so that we will turn away from the worthless and the menial things that we've been putting our weight on, our trust in, and we'll look to him. As I mentioned a moment ago, our tendency is to drift from the Lord, begin to take comfort and security in our nice homes or in the money we make or the influence we wield or the position we have at work or whatever. Guys, we can make altars or idols out of just about anything. Military might, scientific achievement, technological advancement. What did the psalmist say? Some trust in horses, some in chariots. We will remember the name of the Lord our God. You see, God would have us look to him, to trust in him, to find our comfort, our security, our identity in him, the one who has loved us and given himself for us. Now, the Bible says that no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The question is, will I be trained by it or will I kick against it? When the chastening finds you, when those tough times are upon you, God was going to separate them from everything that was keeping them from him. Their strong cities would offer no protection. There would be utter desolation. Why? Well, look at verse 11. Pardon me, verse 10. Because you have forgotten the God of your salvation, and have not been mindful of the rock of your stronghold. Therefore, you will plant pleasant plants and set out foreign seedlings. In that day, or in the day, you will make your plant to grow, and in the morning, you will make your seed to flourish. Notice, but the harvest will be a heap of ruins in the day of grief and desperate sorrow. Let me break this down for you another way. To forget the God of your salvation, to not be mindful of the rock of your stronghold is to invite the day of grief and desperate sorrow, okay? He says, you'll work hard. Uh, All signs will point to a fruitful endeavor, but in the end, it comes to nothing, The harvest is a heap of ruins. Guys, it's hard for me to read this, talking about people putting in hard work and um, in the end it comes to nothing. It's hard for me to read this and not think of our own nation. You know, how we've forgotten the God of our salvation. You know, we give way to the LGBTQIA rather than standing for the word of God. Uh, We support homosexual marriages and multiple gender identities. Guys, do you understand that is a direct assault on the word of God? I googled it. How many genders are there? Um, There were various responses, but I came to a common, there was a common conclusion that was, if you you haven't googled it and you're wondering, just anybody willing to take a stab, how many genders are there? Well, no, listen, I didn't say how many there really are. The common answer was 72. 
the initial information I retrieved said this. There are many different gender identities, including male, female, transgender, gender neutral, non-binary, agender, pangender, gender queer, two-spirit, third gender, and all, none, or a combination of these. Now, this came, listen to me, this came from a website called Teen Talk. Guys, if you think Satan isn't after your kids, you got your head in the sand. You are deceiving yourself. The Bible declares two genders. Listen, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And it's important that you recognize that any suggestion outside of that is an attack on the word of God. You either, listen, all of humanity fits into one of two categories, and they can be defined by three words. You either fit into the category God has said, and you refuse to be moved from the plain reading and teaching of the word of God, or you're willing to be moved by the satanic persuasion, has God said? You're either of God has said or has God said. You understand what I'm saying? He used it in the garden. He's using it today. Family, there is nothing new under the sun. They want guys like me to stay in my lane, you know, not touch on these topics. I'm telling you guys, truth is my lane. That's the thing. And I cannot stand by and not speak into the reality of where we're at as a nation, what God's word says about it, and the fact that we need to repent. Guys, what's it going to take? We're a country that's trying to integrate critical race theory, right, into our schools. People stand and fight for the ability to murder innocent babies in the womb. People want to rebrand pedophiles as MAPs, M-A-P, Minor attracted persons, as opposed to protecting your children whom these people want to use and abuse. Encouraging gender reassignment in children four or five years of age, what will it take for us to look to our maker, you see? Interesting, the droughts we had this year, fires in the food warehouses, kind of like what we're reading, seedlings set out, plants made to grow, But the harvest, a heap of ruins. Think about that. It happens on a national level. It happens on a personal level. Haggai speaks to this as well. He says, you have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but do not have enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages, earn wages to put it into a bag with holes. Hey, maybe that's where you're at. You're working hard. You're looking for side hustles. But it seems like no matter how hard you work, no matter how much you make, the wages go into bags with holes or something. There's just, there's, it just dries up. It just disappears. There's nothing to show for it. Now, guys... I can't say where you're at personally, okay? I'm, I'm not trying to say that if that's where you're at, that it's always God's judgment. Maybe you've just made poor decisions and you're living beyond your means, okay? But perhaps you've gotten distracted. You've forgotten the God of your salvation, the one who created you. You see, turn back to him. 
Seek after him. Allow him to correct you. Allow him to direct you. And he'll bless your life, you see. In verse 12, woe to the multitude of many people who make a noise like the roar of the seas and to the rushing of nations uh, that make a rushing like the rushing of mighty waters. The nations will rush like the rushing of many waters. What he's saying here is that with regard to uh, Syria and Israel, that these nations will be rushing into them like a flood against them, and there won't be anything they can do to stop it, okay? He's like, they're just going to be rushing in. It's going to be like a flood, a torrent. You're going to be overwhelmed, you see. Now, uh, verse 13 uh, carries on. But God will rebuke them and they will flee far away and be chased like the chaff off of the mountains before the wind. You know in that day they would have their threshing floors many times on the hilltops where the wind would blow. And so they would thresh the wheat, right? They would roll over it, however they would crush it out. Then they would throw, they would, the winnowing, they would throw it up into the air and the chaff, just the, the, you know, would be... Um, the husks would be blown off and the, and the kernels of wheat would fall back to the ground. He's saying like that chaff that blows away when you're, uh, uh, you know, doing your um, uh, winnowing, thank you, whatever, uh, harvesting and all. He says, that's what I'm going to do. Like the chaff, chase like the chaff from the mountains before the wind, I'm going to rebuke them. Like a rolling thing before a whirlwind. <laughs> a rolling thing. And I think of like a tumbleweed, you know, there you go, you see it just blowing away out there. It's got nothing before the wind, it's just taken and tossed uh, by it. And we see that then behold at eventide trouble and uh, before, I was thinking of threshing, that's what I was thinking of, and before the morning he is no more. This portion, or this is the portion of those who plunder us and the lot of those who rob us. Now again, this is a common thread woven throughout this section of scripture. Uh, that uh, God will use a nation, maybe many nations, as instruments of judgment, but that does not exempt them from his judgment as well, okay? We all give an account. Uh, Look at verse 14. It says, Then behold, at eventide trouble, and before the morning he is no more. This is exactly what happened when the Assyrians camped outside of Jerusalem and in the night, One angel, the angel of the Lord, went through the camp and uh, killed 185,000 of them. So there was trouble at eventide, and by the morning they were no more. And this chapter kind of ends reminiscent of Isaiah, Isaiah 54 and verse 17. No weapon formed against you shall prosper, and every tongue which rises against you in judgment you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is from me, says the Lord. It's kind of reminiscent of this phrase, this is the portion of those who plunder us. What that means for you, child of God, is that you are not a victim of circumstance, okay? In giving your life to God, you are now at the mercy of God, and you are in the careful hands of your creator. But what we need to remember is that God's aim for us isn't to make us happy, okay? Uh, Though he's not against happiness. But his aim for you and me isn't happiness, it's what? It's holiness, right? His aim isn't to make me happy, it's to make me holy, all right? Now, in chapter 18, guys, 
We're moving right along. We read in verse one, woe to the land shadowed with buzzing wings, which is beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, which sends ambassadors by the sea, even in vessels of reed on the waters saying, go swift messengers to a nation tall and smooth of skin, to a people terrible from their beginning onward, a nation powerful and treading down whose land the rivers divide. Now chapter 18 is kind of interesting in that there's no rebuke for this Ethiopian nation. Now, uh, in fact, it seems to be As I read through it and study on it, it seems to be more of kind of a thanks but no thanks kind of word from the Lord. Uh, The word woe in verse 1, probably not a very good translation. Ho would be better. It's H-O-Y. In other words, it'd be kind of like uh, ho to the land, or we might understand it, listen to me. He's beckoning for their attention. Um, And he's saying, listen to me, you land shadowed with buzzing wings. Now, this is just, you know, Presumably a reference to uh, the insect infestations, perhaps the locust-swarmed land of uh, Egypt and Ethiopia. Now, one thing I'd have you realize is that at the time Isaiah was writing this, Ethiopia, also known as Cush, if you read of Cush uh, in your Bible, it wasn't some poor little third world nation. It was a world power at this time, okay? Egypt was actually being ruled at this time in history by an Ethiopian dynasty. And so it encompassed the area of uh, Ethiopia and Egypt and Somalia and Sudan. Okay? But the big picture here is one of Ethiopia sending ambassadors to Judah to offer an alliance against the onslaught of Assyria that's making its way south and asking them to swiftly, he says, go swiftly to the people tall and smooth-skinned, the definition of the, of the Ethiopians and all, that they would go back to them and send word back to them that they might join forces with them. Now, in Isaiah chapter 36 you find the Assyrians outside of Jerusalem and there they are and they're warning Judah not to trust Egypt and not to join forces with them. It's the same kind of uh, context, okay? Now the reference to a terrible people is simply that they're to be feared, right? Like awesome and terrible. They're respected as a major player on the world stage. Make sense? All right, now look at verse three. All inhabitants of the world and dwellers on the earth. When he lifts up a banner on the mountain, you see it. And when he blows a trumpet, you hear it. Again, major world player. For so the Lord said to me, I will take my rest and I will look from my dwelling place like the clear heat in sunshine, like a cloud of dew in the heat of harvest. Another way to understand that, um, God isn't worried about Assyria at all. He's chill. He's like, thanks for the offer. I don't need your help. The picture is one of contrast, okay? The frantic activity of man on earth buzzing about, going fast, needing a quick reply and all of this versus the calm patience of God upon his throne. I will take my rest I'm relaxed. In other words, I'm not worried about it, guys. Um, I will look from my dwelling place like the clear heat in the sunshine, like the cloud of dew in the heat of the harvest. He's like, you know, thanks, but 
I got this. I'm not worried about it at all. Now, sometimes it can seem as though God's not moving. You know, he's maybe not paying attention to what's going on. The truth is, he's waiting, he's watching, and he's always right on time. Okay? He's patiently allowing Assyria to ripen. He's talking about the harvest here. And then when the time is right, he will reap them in judgment. Now again, you and me, as for an application, there are times, and maybe you're in one right now, when it seems that insurmountable odds are in front of you, or maybe you're in an incredibly difficult situation And there you are, you're frantically trying to figure out what adjustments can I make? Who do I need to partner up with or whatever? But the Lord, guys, the Lord is on the throne. And he's not worried. He's watching. He's waiting. And he says, if you'll trust in me, you'll see what I'll do. Guys, he's always on time. Look at verse 5. For before the harvest, when the bud is perfect and the sour grape is ripening in the flower, he will both cut off the sprigs with the pruning hooks and take away and cut down the branches. They will be left together for the mountain birds of prey and for the beasts of the earth. The birds of prey will summer on them and the beasts of the earth will winter on them. You see what's happening here? The picture is of a vineyard in a field. And the little buds are forming on. That's what he's saying. Like Assyria right now, they're just kind of ripening. Just the the little buds are forming and then they become the tiny flowers and then the tiny flowers kind of begin to become the sour grape. But in this situation, God says, man, when it's time, not only will I harvest the fruit, not only will I grab the grape, you see, I'm going to cut off the entire branch. In other words, he's saying, I am going to destroy the Assyrian army with so completely, with such finality, 185,000 left dead in one night, that they will be left in the fields for the birds and the beasts to prey on and feed on through the summer and the winter. Okay. Total devastation. Total annihilation. Now look at verse 7. And... uh, Where's Karen? I'm assuming you're closing. Come on down. Verse 7. And in that time, a present will be brought to the Lord of hosts from a people tall and smooth of skin, and from a people terrible from their beginning onward, a nation powerful and treading down, whose land the rivers divide. Talking about uh, how the Nile divided the region, all the little uh, rivers that shot off from the Nile to the place of the name of the Lord of hosts to Mount Zion. In other words, God is saying, you're asking me to join you. That's that's what you've asked. You've sent ambassadors to Judah. You've said, will you join us? Will you help us? Send the answer swift. Thanks, no thanks. I'm not worried about it. But the day is going to come when you are going to join me. Worship me and offer gifts to me. Now, we can see this fulfillment 
legitimately, if you care to, in the book of Acts, when Philip led the Ethiopian eunuch to Christ, and he went back, and there was a thriving, uh, church history will demonstrate to you, a thriving Christian community. Well, there's still one to this day, but definitely through the first few hundred years of church history. But we can also see it fulfilled in the millennial kingdom when nations come to Jerusalem and worship Jesus Christ and offer gifts to him there, Isaiah chapter 60 and first seven verses. But guys, it's the same point. Do you understand that? It's the same point over and over again that God will bless the nation. He will bless the people. He will bless the person who looks to him, who trusts in him, who waits on him. But those who insist on their own abilities ultimately will only fail miserably. So, what's the take home? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your path. And he'll be glorified in your life. Amen? God, we thank you that you love us. And I pray, God, that you help us not look to, not lean on our own understanding, our own works, our own efforts, our own ingenuity, but that we look to you, our maker. And God, I just pray that you would heal our land. God, that you would forgive us our sins. And that you would make us one nation under God once again. And that we never forget the God of our salvation. Guys, while our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, I would just say, God loves you. And Jesus came to save you. You can't come your way. You gotta come his way. And that's only through Jesus Christ. Salvation is by grace through faith alone. And so turn from your sin, place your faith in Jesus, and you'll be saved. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. It's not about what you do, it's about what he's done. I'm not talking about going to church or being religious or any other thing. I'm talking about you entering into a relationship with your Redeemer, the one who has loved you and proved his love for you and that while you were still sinners, Christ died for you. And so if the Lord's knocking on the door of your heart and today's a day of salvation for you and you want to open it and receive him, believe on him and be saved, I want to pray for you. I would just ask that you would raise your hand. I don't care how old you are, how young you are, where you've been, what you've done, what you thought, where you thought you were at or whatever. But if you can't say with certainty that Christ has his home in your heart, that he's enthroned upon your heart, then uh, listen, let's not second guess it. Anyone I can pray for?
God bless you, buddy. I'll see you. Anyone else? Father, I just thank you, Lord, that uh, you have captured the attention of our hearts and our minds. And Lord, we turn our eyes upon you. And I pray, God, that uh, we would just be solidified in that position. I thank you, Lord, that you honor the desire of our heart. And when we draw near to you, you draw near to us. And so we humble ourselves before you. And we cry out to you, God, we turn, we turn from our own wicked ways. And I pray, Lord, that that would be the testimony, the legacy, not only of this ministry, but each life that's here individually. That our light would so shine, that our lives would look like a life set apart to you because it is a life set apart to you. You would help us guard the words that come out of our mouths. The thoughts that infiltrate and invade our minds. That we learn how to take each thought into captivity, Jesus, to you. And that you take our perversities, Lord, and you create in us purities. And we thank you, Lord, that your washing is complete. And that you have cast our sin as far as the east is from the west. And now, Lord, that we just come out from among them and be holy. For you are holy. Have your way, we pray. And we'll give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, before I have you stand, did, Shannon, did we get anything? Is, where's Jody? Do we know where Jody is? Is he in the children's ministry or something? He may be. Well, Bernard, if you're watching, I'm sorry. Um, we'll get it next time, I promise. My, you guys, I showed you the video, Bernard, a week or two ago. And he sent us another video, and I gave it to Jody this week, and I thought maybe he would put it up there, but if you don't see it, that's okay. It's just a... Yeah, I, I don't know what it's called. Bernard? Oh, Jeff, show mercy here. <laughs> Huh? Yeah. Let's just hit it next time. And I'll throw it up on our community page as well. But basically, uh, he's just, again, it's just another thank you. You know, he's just, it's just so important to him that you know how grateful he is that, uh, you know, you have come alongside him and been there for him in his time of need and, and really, I mean, saved his life, you know. And so he just wants to extend another another thank you. And we'll get that to you. Uh, next time. I don't know. No. Wait. Maybe. Nope. That was the last one we did. That's okay. Let's can that one. In love, Bernard. In love. We canned it in love. We can, we can throw that up. Because he's like, I'll be watching Jeff. He's like, uh, they're like seven hours ahead of us or something. So he, you know, preached this morning and then they, they watch our services here as well. 
you know, which is really cool, guys. I just, you know, we just don't know how the Lord's using us sometimes, you know. It's really neat to think of, but, you know, the word is going out, and that's because of your faithfulness, you know, to the Lord. And so, anyway, uh, we'll get you next time. Why don't we rise to our feet? Guys, may the Lord bless you, and, and uh, may he be with you, and uh, may he uh, pour his spirit out in power upon you, and uh, may you just find your heart uh, just drawing closer and closer to Jesus Christ. May you find your heart's desire for his word to be refreshed and renewed, and, and may your heart for the lost be inflamed, and May you find yourself sharing the gospel with folks at work or at school or in the gym or just wherever you are, that you be the light that God's called you to be. And if, you know, you're a little intimidated at this point, then maybe you could just say, come and see. You know, invite someone to church. Then, man, you need to come. You know, I, we'll give them an opportunity to give their life to Christ. It's all good. But don't be, don't be uh, too nervous about it. Guys, God loves you. All right, let me put it to you like this. Aren't you glad someone was bold enough to share the gospel with you? Man, I mean, I think about that. You know, someone had the boldness to share the reality of Jesus Christ and change me forever. I'm forever indebted. I couldn't be more grateful, you know, kind of. Well, you can be that for someone else. You just got to get over yourself. You just got to get past yourself, worried about what they'll think of me, or maybe I won't have the right words, or maybe I'll, or maybe you could trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding, and all your ways acknowledge him and let him direct you in what to say and, and share. And so come down, we'll love to pray for you, whatever your need may be, all right? So Father, we just thank you again for your word. We pray that it find um, cultivated, well-cultivated soil, the seed of your word to find root in our hearts and bring forth fruit for your glory. Uh, God, we love you, and we just thank you, uh, Lord, for your word. And we pray, God, you go before us now. And as always, have your way in us, and we'll give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful Sunday. Yes, sir. Thanks for always preaching the truth.